Hello, everyone. I'm Paul Menzel. And I'm Jim Conlon. And this is New Tricks for Old Dogs. Our podcast features the many ways us older folks howl at the moon, odd news items you don't normally hear about, and conversations with other old dogs who are growing bolder, not older. So if you've got 25 minutes or so, grab a cup of coffee, pull up a chair, and join us. In this episode, the old dogs ramble about bringing us all closer together after the presidential election. We celebrate a lady who participated in her first election in her 70s. In our Who Knew department, we take a peek at dirty words in paleontology. We report on a new book that offers seniors validation about what they want. We mark the passing of movie legend Sean Connery. We read another letter from one of our faithful fans. And we question some of the signatures in an open letter about herd immunity. In the Old Dogs Conversation, we catch up with Eileen Morris, actress, director, and an icon and trailblazer in the American Black Theater. Stay with us. Well, Paul, I can imagine what's on your mind today. Okay, and why don't you just tell me? Well, I think (laughs) what we've just been through lately. I'll tell you. Yeah. Uh, What I've been thinking about, like a lot of people, and I'm sure you too, is we've just come through a very contentious election. Yes, we have. And uh, now we got to figure out some way of healing those chasms that have uh, kind of opened up in the election process. Yeah, well, what sort of hope do you have? Uh, it's going to take a lot of work. You know, I think a lot of people are invested in their position mm-hmm. uh, regarding how the election turned out. So um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that invested is a good word, that all of us have concerns that matter to us. I think, Paul, that what's behind all of that that I observe is the element of fear. And what I mean by that is that people have a position that they are afraid they're going to lose if, let's say, the other person wins. And that is a fear. And it seems that fear is a very powerful emotion, and it drives many of us to become even more positional, because whether it's rational or not, we fear losing it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I think we're going to have to work to return to those days when you could disagree with somebody uh, about their opinions, Mm -hmm. uh, but still go out and have dinner together. Yeah. In other words, we have to find common ground and... It's going to take a long time, I think. How about yeah. you? Well, I, I do think it's going to take a long time, but I think that a lot of people are committed to it. I think that the general nature of humanity is that we want to get along. We're a society. And I think that that is going to help us overcome some of these obstacles because we do want to get together and we do want to share our concerns, but also to have company in terms of sharing, and not just people who parrot what we think. Well, and you don't have to go that far. I think in most families, there's oh, been yeah, there's yeah. been a big political division. Yes, so. there has, and a lot of contention and acrimony. I, I agree, and actually a lot of disowning among families, uh, a lot of unfriending on Facebook. Well, you know, also now that the election is over, that constant ginning up of divisions that came through the news. Yeah and uh, came through social media, hopefully that has all been either eliminated or greatly reduced, which should allow uh, some area for finding common ground. Well, maybe one of the things that we should consider is not contributing to the unrest, not contributing to the contention, fomenting uh, that kind of violent reaction. 
You know what, Jim? We put so much thought into this. They should put yeah. us in charge, don't you think? Really? Yeah. Us. Us. You and I in charge of healing the rift. Oh, okay. I see a great right. big band-aid. <laughs> Maybe a thousand miles long. <laughs> this year's presidential election attracted more voters than any previous election. Here's the story about a 70-year-old that voted this year for the first time. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for October 29th, 2020. Judy Kosick was first eligible to vote in 1972 when Richard Nixon ran against George McGovern. But she chose not to vote that year, and she didn't vote in the next 11 national elections. Hmm. She was one of the 92 million eligible voters who didn't participate in the 2016 election. A shocking number. In her words, I was a hippie, a good part of my life. I got married. I had children. My whole life, I had no interest in voting. I had no reason to care. But this year, she decided to break her record for not voting. This year, I have all the reasons in the world to vote, she said. This world is chaos. This world is nuts. Her decision was supported by being able to vote by mail in her home state of Pennsylvania without needing a reason. If you're wondering who Judy voted for, well, here's a few hints. She doesn't own a cell phone or a computer. There are no tweets in her life. She watched all the debates on television. And finally, she is an Irish Catholic from Scranton. If that doesn't give it away, you are probably one of the millions who didn't vote this year because they think their vote doesn't matter. Of course, it does. It does. Yes. They were just trying to have an online paleontology conference, but innocent words were being censored. This item is from the New York Times for October 18th, 2020. Well, the trouble started when an expert on the Tyrannosaurus Rex typed Hell Creek Formation, which is where remains of the giant dinosaur have been found. Instead of hell, four asterisks appeared in the chat column. The problem was that the software plugins have controls that replace questionable words with asterisks. Colleagues gave examples of other words that had been censored by the software. They included knob, pubis, penetrate, and stream. And perhaps the most curious was bone, which we imagine occurs frequently in conversations about paleontology. The solution was to remove words from the filter that shouldn't have been there. It made the group wonder if lay people hear paleontologists talking in the field and think they're talking dirty. Well, it's more likely that lay people listening to paleontologists are fast asleep, don't uh, you think? Well, you can't say lay, Paul. There's a new book out called What Retirees Want, a holistic view of life's third age that you might want to take a look at. This pod nugget is from the New York Times for October 19th, 2020. The co-authors are Ken Dykewald and Robert Morrison. They're both baby boomers and experienced researchers. They surveyed 100,000 other boomers exploring different facets of retirement. The book suggests three ages to life. The first 30 years focuses on biological development, making friends, forming an identity, and seeking a partner. The second age, from 30 to 60, focuses on building family and a productive career. Because of medical breakthroughs, there is a whole new third age from 60 to 90. The third age, which is the focus of the book, is about reinvention of oneself. 
It's about continuing to grow, meet new people, try new things, and maybe even discover a new purpose. Their research suggests that people approaching retirement don't think enough of how to fill this third stage. Rather than a static period when they move from the office to the recliner, the third stage can be filled with new interests and course corrections. If you've got some room on your bookshelf, clear a space for this book. It's stuffed full of information about our generation. It's a hopeful look at all the possibilities for our third age and a practical look at how health and finances can impact our options. Yeah, we're going through that, aren't we? Well, yeah, that's what our podcast is all about. The death of Sean Connery at 90, the first film James Bond, left us shaken, not stirred. Mm -hmm. This pod nugget is from the Washington Post for October 31st, 2020. Sean Connery was the original, and many would say the best, James Bond. The first film in the Bond series was Dr. No, which premiered in 1962. No one can forget his self-introduction in a light Scottish brogue, My name is Bond, James Bond. He appeared in six more Bond films, ending with Never Say Never Again in 1983. He didn't really match the physical description of Bond in the novels by Ian Fleming. Connery was Scottish, not English, with a working-class edge. He stood six foot two, with the looks of a bodybuilder and a hint of menace. But he was handsome, confident, and worldly. Everyone knew how he'd liked his vodka martinis. Shaken, Shaken, not not stirred. stirred. While he acknowledged his debt to the Bond role, Connery carefully avoided being typecast. His film career included more than 60 films as a leading man spanning five decades. At the time of his death in the Bahamas, Connery had come a long way from his working-class background in Edinburgh, where he had once trained to be a coffin polisher. Over the years, he had acquired wealth, fame, and the respect of everyone in the film industry. Director Terence Young once said... There are only two great stars in my recollection who have not been changed by massive success. Sean Connery and Lassie, and both of them are Scottish. From time to time, we've gotten email from our listeners. It's real easy from our website, olddogspodcast.com. Click on the Contact Us option and give us a piece of your mind. Here's a comment from Eric T., My wife and I every day share tidbits of news and information we glean from our day that amaze and confound us. It's our private chuckle at the world increasingly taken over by younger generations. This podcast now gives us a steady stream of things to laugh about and talk about. Thanks for the conversations. Well, Eric, we're glad that our podcast has given you and your wife something to talk about. I hate it when things are so quiet over breakfast that all you hear is the snap, crackle, and pop from your rice crispies. And thanks for the heads up on the younger generation taking yeah. over the world. We have barricaded our studios, <laughs> and they will have to pry the microphones from our cold, dead hands. Darn tootin'. <laughs> When you ask people to sign an open letter, you should screen out the obvious jokes, don't you think? Yeah. This pod nugget is from the Sky News for October 9th, 2020. The Great Barrington Letter, organized by prominent advocates of herd immunity, claims to have been signed by 15,000 scientists and medical practitioners. 
Herd immunity is a questionable solution to COVID-19, although it does seem to have some support. Uh, But the real issue with this letter is a number of questionable signatures. These included Dr. I.P. Freely, (laughs) Dr. Person Fake Name, and Dr. Johnny Bananas. (laughs) One signature that isn't an obvious fake is Dr. Harold Shipman. Although a GP by that same name in the United Kingdom killed more than 200 of his patients before he was arrested in 1998. Yikes. In addition, the letter was signed by over 100 therapists, including massage therapists, hypnotherapists, and one Mongolian kumi singer who describes himself as a therapeutic sound practitioner, Paul. You know, I think I went to him at one time. (laughs) The organizers of the letter say they don't have the resources to audit every signature, but if their goal is to persuade, it doesn't take a lot of resources to call out the obvious fakes. (laughs) This pod nugget was endorsed by Dr. Seth A. Scope. Eileen Morris is the artistic director of the Ensemble Theater of Houston, Texas, one of the largest African-American theaters in the world. She is credited with over 87 productions, including over 64 regional premieres and eight world premieres. She has received numerous local, regional, and national awards for her directing and her community leadership. She is nationally recognized for her interpretation of the plays of August Wilson, who once said, Art does not change the world, it changes people, and people change the world. Tell us a little bit about the ensemble and also how long you have been connected to them. I moved here in 1981 from Chicago, Illinois, which was my hometown. So coming here gave me an opportunity to meet George Hawkins, who is the founder of the Ensemble Theater. He wanted to create the Ensemble Theater as a platform for African-American artists to be able to uh, tell their stories. Eileen, what sort of effect do you think the Ensemble Theater has had on the city of Houston and on, let's say, the theater community in general? Well, I think, first of all, the Ensemble Theater is, uh, we're 44 years old uh, this year in our 44th season. And we are an important institution like so many other theater companies and other institutions that create legacy. But the Ensemble Theater has, you know, is really specially important because there's no other institution in the city of Houston that is doing the type of work that we're doing as far as reaching the audiences and hiring artists that are affecting the African-American experience that deals with Um, equity and diversity in the way that we do each and every day, because everything that we do, our mission is to enrich, entertain, and enlighten a diverse community. You know, George Hawkins founded the Ensemble Theater because there was not a platform where African-American artists could really work, or they could work, but then the type of work that they were doing was not necessarily always um, one that represented who, who we are as a people. And so I think that the Ensemble Theater holds a viable place in the community because we're dealing with a subject matter that not everybody's dealing with every day. We're also uh, reaching a diverse community. So we're not only dealing with that, but we're also making sure that it's impactful to our artists and to our community. I remember one time, uh, Ebert Evans, who used to be the um, theater critic for the uh, Houston Chronicle. And he said, Eileen, I don't know what we would do. What would this city do if we didn't have an ensemble theater? And uh, we thought about that. That was a, you know, a question that made us pause because what would we do in this city, the fourth largest, soon to be third largest city in the U.S., to not have the voices of African-American people being represented in a really very strong, theatrical, professional manner. And I think that that's what the Ensemble Theater brings. It brings the aspects of 
telling our stories, but having those stories be told so that everyone understands that they are relevant and they could be your stories. You know, you have a, a gorgeous facility now and, and you, uh, you have a huge budget, $2 million a year. But, you know, I know when you were starting out, it was uh, out of the trunk of George Hawkins' car, wasn't it? Tell us about those beginnings. <laughs> you know, Mr. Hawkins sacrificed so much because of his belief in what he wanted the, the theater to become and has become. So it started out doing children's shows or educational plays from the trunk of his car. He had this long black Cadillac that someone had donated to him. And they would perform uh, plays that he wrote, like the Br'er Rabbit stories, that, which we still do today. Uh, stories that, uh, again, uh, are, speak to the African-American experience. And then uh, he, we had gotten a little small space called 1010 2M, which was an old pet store. And he kind of renovated that space. And that's what we did. Theater. We did plays like A Raisin in the Sun, A Soldier's Play, No Place to Be Somebody. You know, classical pieces of work are part of our history. And they are plays that you know have been well known and won Pulitzer Prizes and all of that. And then in 1985, George was really hungry to make sure that we would have a, a larger space because he knew that uh, there were uh, so many things that he wanted to do with the theater, like have multiple stages, be able to have an intense training program for youth, also be able to um, actually have educational program. So he found this place that we're at now, which is 3535 Main Street. And uh, 3535 Main Street is a 30,000 square foot facility that we own. And you're right, you know, in those days, the budget was, you know, very small. I mean, it was, George and I didn't get paid to do the work that we did. I was his managing director at the time from like 82 until like he died in 1990. And uh, so, of, of course, you know, the hardship of just struggling and, um, you know, getting people, making people aware of who you are and what the work is that you're doing and how it's important that they support this type of thing and to be able to know that George's dream has come true, that we continue to be impactful and make a difference in what we're doing. And that's all because of our community support and the support of the people and George's dream and stick to this to, um, to make that happen. Eileen, yeah. you keep referring back to the purpose of the theater and the diverse audience uh, that you have opened this theater to and the subject matter that you deal with. Could you talk a little bit more about the subject matter and its relevance to everybody who comes to theater performances? In particular, what sort of subject matter do you think is most relevant today? Well, I think that um, the reason I, that I bring that up is because the mission is, is very much a part of who we are and what we believe in and, and what we uh, base our art around, the mission of the theater, and to educate, entertain, and enlighten uh, a diverse community. And the work that the Ensemble Theater does is, first of all, is plays that speak to the African-American experience. They are normally are written by African-American artists, so it provides a platform for artists to be able to have their work shown. But they, we have done plays that have been written you know, by non-African-American uh, artists, but they speak from the African-American perspective. And so what we're looking at is how do those plays affect us as a community? Uh, how can we make sure that our community understands that there are stories that they can relate to and that they can see images on stage that look like them. That's hugely important. So here's one story. We did a play called Cinderella, which is one of the shows that we're going to be doing as an archival video on demand uh, for the holiday season. And, uh, oh, we would see all the young ladies, the little girls come with their mothers and they would dress with their tiaras, tiaras on their heads and they would dress in their beautiful little ball gowns because they were excited because they were coming to the theater. 
And there was a young lady that um, she came to see the play and she um, was looking at a playbill and she looked at the cover and she saw Cinderella on the cover. And Cinderella was a wonderful, beautiful little chocolate, chocolate woman. And she was on the cover and she looked at her and she looked up at her mommy and she said, mommy, she looks like me. And that's the reason that we do the stories that we do. That's the reason we tell, you know, that we, we are so animate about making sure that our voices are heard. Here's another perspective. You know, uh, today with all the, the things that are going on with George Floyd being murdered and Black Lives Matter and the fact that, you know, in today's world, we are asking the world to take a look at us as human beings, to take a look at the fact that we too are Americans, the fact that we as African-Americans have made a place in this world. But that place, what we want you to understand, it's that that story can be anybody's story. We did a play called Fences, and I remember seeing that play. My ex-husband, Alex Morris, was doing that play in Germany. And, you know, I was wondering, like, how are these people going to understand what's going on? You know, most of them don't even speak English. They don't really understand uh, the story. But it was because the story was a universal story. We dealt with a father and a son, and it dealt with the father having problems with the wife. Those were universal stories. And so it didn't matter that they were brown-skinned people up there telling the stories. What mattered was that it was human connection, human dynamics. And I think that's the beauty of art, is that we are able to look at those stories from a, a different perspective. So when you talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion, you, when you talk about the entity of Black Lives Matter and making sure that people understand why it's important that the ensemble theater exists because of the fact that it, who's, who will tell our stories in the way that we will. Who will tell them from the perspective that we're telling them as African-Americans, right? That's the way that we're looking at it. And that's why it's important. What do you prefer, uh, acting or directing? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can't believe you asked me that. <laughs> that is so hard. I love to act. When I was growing up and in college and in high school, all I ever wanted to do was just act. That's it. I didn't want to do anything else. But, you know, um, the world changes and you find other experiences. You know, as artists, we, we have to know a little bit of everything. And so directing now has become, I mean, I've directed uh, at the Ensemble Theater for many, many years and many shows. And so I enjoy pulling people together. I enjoy, uh, you know, all of these creative minds coming together and, you know, kind of finding a commonality to make sure that we're going to pull out of that particular piece of art those words, that language, what that playwright was saying and bringing together those people. I, I love that part. Yeah. So here's a difficult question, Eileen, because it asks you to look forward and backward at the same time. What do you <laughs> think your greatest legacy is going to be when it's all done? Um, I, I would think that uh, my connection with the community and the commitment that the ensemble has to our community is a huge part of um, really what I believe in. And, and that's, that goes back from when I was a little girl and my parents used to have us volunteer in our community to make sure that we understood what it meant to give back and to have your voice heard in that way. Yeah. Have you given any thoughts at all to what your next act is going to be, your third act after... Uh, after being artistic. whenever I retire, right? Whenever that happens, right? Are you gonna, are you going to die with grease paint on, or what? What's your plan? <laughs> In the perfect world, I guess 
the plan would be to be able to always still direct shows and act in shows if I could um, to consult. And, uh, you know, I've always wanted to have a casting agency because I think I'm good at casting. I love putting people together and finding the right mix of people and matches of people for a project. So I've often thought about, about that type of thing in my world. So I think directing still, acting, so, so it's still going to be this gumbo mix. I always say everything is like a pot of gumbo, right? Because we're from the South. We live in Houston. We love gumbo. It's putting all those things together and making, mixing them up and then, you know, presenting it. Uh, so I'll do my little gumbo thing and I'll do some acting and some directing and some consulting. Like what you've been hearing? How about sharing the joy with your friends? We can always use more listeners. There are more episodes on the way, so stay tuned and keep howling at the moon.